I'm not pulling out of my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another Drive to Work Coronavirus Edition. Okay, so I've been lining up fun interviews, and I have another blast from the past. So I want to introduce Devin Lowe. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Devin. So um, before we get to all your time at Wizards, I want to ask the question I've been asking all my people uh, on the interviews is, how did you start playing Magic? Uh, I used to go to gaming conventions with my dad, who was playing a lot of miniature war games, and I won some random event at some convention and they gave me like a ten dollar gift certificate to spend at some vendor there so i went there whatever under ten dollars not a board game not a miniatures game that's too expensive and they got a boost back soon called magic i could buy two or three of those uh so the price was right and and there it was so i didn't have a rule book i just had some packs that had like grizzly bears and guys legion forest and mox emerald and that, that was enough to, to get me hooked so th- how about this was alpha how far back was this 93 so alpha yeah yeah alpha okay with the weird corners and everything Okay, so uh, how old were you when that when you started playing? I want to say fourteen. Okay, so did you continue playing? Like, how did you get into the game? Yeah, I, uh, I I had a very small amount of cards for a very very long time. Uh, some of my friends that I was playing with had like bought bought boxes, and that was like totally foreign to me. I bought like a few packs here and there, like per year, and so I had a small collection of Magic cards enough for. Uh, like three decks or something. It was like a big deal that I could make a deck of all black cards of the, the color I happened to have the most of. I couldn't make a deck of all of any other single color. But I dutifully took these with me and taught kids to play at summer camps, uh, at school, and I would like, you know, play this giant spider deck against this uh, hypnotic specter deck. Uh, that's, that's a matchup where I like the spider. And <laughs> uh, just kind of see, you know, did you just play it out? And looking back in those days, I can sort of still imagine those alpha artworks in my head and it seems like a different game entirely than one that I ended up working on, right? It has like a mystical aura of like remembering there's holy armor and that weird guy with the armored horns and a big flail and, uh, you know, you cast unholy strength on your uh, vampire bats and how cool that was. So did, did you play continuously from when you started or did you take a break? I never took any breaks, not really. Um, it really kicked into high gear after I uh, got to Harvard and some of the guys there were playing a ton of tournaments and trying to get the Pro Tour and were very excited about that and trying to figure out uh, how to win the game, how to uh, get inside the uh, the physics of it. And so I started hanging out with those guys and Your Move Games was uh, a big influence on that group. Obviously it has a bunch of Pro Tour champions coming out of there. Um, and we started playing PDQs and I won a few of them and I went through three Pro Tours in 2000. And then that eventually was instrumental in me to get a Wizards. So, okay, how, how'd you get to Wizards? How'd that happen? Uh, so, my mom let me know that uh, she knew I loved the game, and she told me that my cousin was the nanny of Richard Garfield. It's pretty weird. She was like, you should go and meet him sometime. Like, you know, uh, see if you can go say hi. I was like, oh, mom, like, that'd be so embarrassing. I can't just, like, go say hi to him. Like, what would I say? And I was, like, too cool and too embarrassed to do it. She's like, no, you should do this. Like, okay, fine. So, I went to meet Richard. Uh, he's amazing. He's very smart. Uh, he had already changed my life for the better by the time I met him, and that was before he changed my life 10 more times the better by, uh, you know, uh, being the, the grandfather of something that that uh, shaped my whole career. But he was very nice and welcoming, and he offered to, like, play board game with me some time with his friends. But did that a couple of times, and then eventually um, I sort of harbored a secret thought of applying to Wizards someday, but I kept putting it off, right? Uh, it's easy to give yourself reasons not to take the leap and put yourself out there to sort of get judged and, and probably rejected. Um, but I was reading a latest developments column that's written by Randy Bueller, a column that I would eventually someday write. And uh, he was showing the Vaporops test of what they showed prospective Wizards applicants to sort of uh, get a sense of how good they were at analyzing the game. 
And he published this in his column and encouraged people to sort of like send in their answers. And I thought, oh, geez, this is going to prompt 10 million people to actually apply because they'll uh, be interested in the process. They'll think they're pretty good answers and they'll want to send them in and try to get the door. So I thought, uh, I missed my chance. What was me? I'm a terrible person for not applying before now because now the huge wave is going to come in. But the least I can do is to uh, try to pitch myself now that this moment has arrived, at least kind of like try to like get in at the front of this wave of applicants that's never really going to gonna, uh, show up. And so I took the test, tried to do a good job and sort of put together a packet of why I thought I could uh, add value to, uh, to the company making magic sets. And I sent it to Garfield um, and he gave it to a buddy of his at Wizards, who was Bill Rose. And then a, a few months later, a slot opened up and uh, he gave me a call and we had an interview and he said, okay, come up for six months. And then six months eventually turned to full time in five years. And I eventually became the, uh, the head developer of magic, uh, at a time when, uh, Rosewater was obviously the head designer of magic. And so it was great to collaborate and, uh, worked a bunch of magic sets, worked a bunch of non, non-magic sets, sort of warming up to magic. I worked a bunch of other wizards games that was sort of the, uh, the, the more, more B-list stuff. Um, but I had a great time there. It was a big part of my life. And uh, after that, I you know, went on to work on other hobby games and other card games. And so it was, it was, it was instrumental. It was a big deal. Okay, let's go back a little bit. Let's, yeah. let's, let's spend a little more time walking through the yeah. time at Wizards. Okay, so you get hired at Wizards. Um, yeah. Okay, so what is the first thing? What's the first magic thing you worked on? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, like uh, the very first thing they had to work on is like Neopets and Dual Masters, all these non-magic games. But I was very good at work on magic as many people are. And so um, they had a slot on the... Fifth on development team, they were really close to the end, um, but I hopped on there with Brian Schneider, I think, leading it, and uh, you know, got a couple of cards in the file through hole filling, and it's the kind of thing where the people that have been there for five years, the hole filling comes up like, oh yeah, it's one more thing I have to do, my list of twelve things I have to do. But for a new person there, hole filling is like the most exciting thing in the universe because you might make a magic card, and so I would put a lot of energy in trying to make really good hole fills and try to impress people, get them to file, and I got some in, and that was like already mind blowing. Yeah, it's very funny. We still, even today we still do hole filling, and you're you're right. Like uh, the old times, like not more hole filling, and the new people are like, I get to make magic cards, and they make a lot of cards. So it's very funny. Okay, so uh, fifth on. Uh, so then we moved into Kamigawa Block. Did you work on anything in Kamigawa Block? Yeah, I was a, a tester only for Champions, and still working mostly in other games. But I was a developer on Betrayers, and I was a co-designer on Saviors. Um, and it was a time when. Uh, we were just starting to realize that Mirrodin was going to have a bunch of like power level problems and a bunch of wizards uh, resources that had been historically used on playtesting had been sort of like diverted during that time period to work on like transformers and uh, star Wars CCGs kind of stuff. I guess not transformers, I guess star Wars. And so uh, that was part of why Mirrodin had some power level mistakes in it to put it lightly. And uh, I eventually became the first of sort of wave of new developer designers that they hired to sort of come and, uh, fix that and make our resource uh, bench stronger so that we could find more of those power level problems and fix them before they got out of hand. And so sort of during the Kamigawa year, uh, I think we ended up hiring myself, Mike Turian and Matt Place and Paul Sodesanti. Uh, Aaron came over from the website, eventually, you know, sort of a, a second wave of folks after that, but uh, a bunch of people came into that time more than a RD in, in the years previous. Okay, so after Kamigawa Block was Ravnica Block. So, did you work on anything in Ravnica, the original Ravnica Block? Did you work on anything? Yeah. 
I, I was a uh, co-designer on Guild Pact, and the idea of the guilds was something that the, the game hadn't really had since then, but it was hugely influential because so many sets since then have essentially had guilds of varying kinds, whether it's been Return to Ravnica or whether it's been uh, Shards or whether it's been Cons or something. And uh, you sort of see that idea of let's take a subculture in this world and give them their own mechanic, you give them their own color identity, and uh, give an ethos that will help players uh, find the guild they identify with and uh, feel kinship to the game through their expression in the guild. So here's a question. You were around at the time. Uh, what do you remember? When I first pitched the guilds, it was not universally <laughs> taken as a positive thing. Do you remember your take on the guilds? Your first impression? I mean, I don't think I, I don't remember being being anti it or for it. I, I don't see the iconic Mark Rosewater story to say I pitched this cool idea and R and D told me no, they're going to stick to the butt. But then I kept persisting, and then I won out, and then the players loved it. Victory, Mark Rosewater, and it is true that has happened many times. But it is it is a funny uh, iconic Mark Rosewater story, I, and this is probably one of those two. But I, I don't remember being uh, pro anti. I think the thing that it wasn't the the thing that threw people in R and D was that we had to make a draft for all three sets. And the, I think the real worry was we, we couldn't have these colors here, these colors here, these colors here, and make a, a, a draft that would possibly work. I think that was the biggest right. worry. Um, it was also weird to them that this set did, like this set had a red-blue card, and no other set had the red-blue card. That was weird, right. but... Um, I remember that um, Torment and Judgment had come before this, and Torment had more black cards than the regular Magic set, and Judgment had more white and green cards than the regular Magic set, and those have been like pretty popular, uh, at least by our understanding. And so that sort of uh, opened there a little bit to have color imbalance, right? And say, like, it's not, it's not totally insane to have a set with all the colors on balance. It is funny to me how um, the brand and marketing folks at the time were like, well, what if, what if players don't realize that there are any guilds in the set? And, and RD's like, guys, this is, this is not a problem. This one thing they're going to realize is that they're guilds in the set. We're like, no, no, no. We think some people might just, like, not even pick up that they're guilds. Uh, and so they, they insisted we add Ravnica City of Guilds to be the, the set name and not just Ravnica because they really wanted people to know their guilds there. And by the time set came out, it seems preposterous that it would possibly not know those guilds there. They're, just, they're, they're all over the art, the names, the flavor text, the abilities, everything. Yeah, it's funny. So uh, the the two people, so I and Brady Domareth, who was the head of the creative team at the time, we and I were fighting against that. And then he and I went on vacation on the same week and that's when they changed it. That's funny. <laughs> and it's also a classic wizard thing of um, if there's some card that only one person on the team likes, and they go on vacation. The card's inevitably going to be killed while they're gone. Like uh, it, it's very dangerous to go on vacation. Like all the things you like will be toast. Okay, so the next set after the next block after that was time spiral block. So this is the first time you led something, correct? Yes, uh, I remember. Uh, but what, what did you lead? Since we, you and I know, it, it, but it, it was planar <laughs> chaos, which I think that uh, Paul Sassani was on the design team for, possibly the lead of, and uh, I, uh, I, the lead was Aaron. I was Bill Rose, but uh, okay, Paul was on it. Okay, and so I was, I was going to lunch, and Paul's in the car, and we're talking about Planet Chaos and how, like, oh, it's going to be all this crazy stuff, and we're all a little worried about it. And I literally said something like, uh, like, I feel bad the person's going to, like, lead that development team. And then Paul was like, Devin, they're saying that it might be you leading that development team, which I hadn't heard before. And I was like, oh, in that case, uh, in that case it'll be fine. It'll all work out. No problem. Um, but it was scary at the time to uh, think about breaking the color wheel in – dramatic ways and planar chaos was going to fool around with uh having all the colors do different things uh the structure was the past uh, an alternate present and the future and so part of the alternate present was what if you use the same color philosophies but express those through different mechanics and so uh red is all of us sort of short-term gain and who cares about the consequences of the future and so what if you gave red some ability to uh 
return creatures to their owner's hand on the basis that that was a short-term solution that sort of didn't think about the future because the creatures would just come right back next turn. And so Red got some bounce spells, and uh, there were a bunch of other color pie shifts that were not typical, were sort of uh, things you would never do, and we were going to do them all. And then they were also talking about maybe doing purple in that set as a sixth color, which was very terrifying to me, and I'm very glad we didn't do we did explore that in the design. We ended up sort of not going that path, but we did. We didn't really, really explore it. That's the one set we're like, maybe we'll do this. It's a brand new color pie. It's an alternate reality. What if it had six colors? So we we right. did explore it, but we d- didn't end up doing it. Um, yeah, the planar chaos to this day is one of the things I'm like, I'm not sure we should have done that. I I get people all the time defending things by showing me planar chaos cards as as proof that the color should do it, and yeah. I'm like, okay, guys, please stop using planar chaos as the. Uh, right. I can also remember uh, arguing with uh, some guy named Mark Rosewater, where um, he kept saying that the structure block was past, alternate, present, future, which definitely is a nice kind of like, you know, uh, rhyme to it, right? Like it, it makes sense in your head as, as, a, as a triptych. And I would say things like, look, Mark, there's a bonus sheet in Planar Chaos and has, has these, these color shifted versions of old cards where you're used to seeing a Black Knight from Alpha and now it's a, a red version. It's still. Uh, two-colored mana for 2-2 two, two first strike per white, but now it's red instead, and it's called Blood Knight. So this is really a alternate version of the past. All these are past cards we're working on. They're not really alternate cards of the present. And so in a way, it's past, alternate past, future. <laughs> uh, and I was like, you know, trying to trying to convince Mark that, that there's something wrong with the past, present, future uh, modeling. And Mark's trying to convince me and trying to help me get it. And I'm like, not getting it. And he's like, getting more frustrated. And eventually he's like, Devin, what's going to sell better? Past, present, future? Or past, alternate, past, future? And I was like, past, present, future. And he's like, exactly. And I was like, okay, Mark, you win. Past, alternate, present, future. And you were right. So. Um, and so, the, and so that, that is a version of an iconic Mark Rosewater story, by the way. Because uh, there's you saying something, maybe you get sick of the mud, and then you convinced me to be triumphant. So, so there you go. There's one. So, uh, I, there's a lot of stories, by the way, where I was wrong. I, I, I tell the stories where I was right, so. Um, they, they say that people who uh, write the history uh, have lots of control of uh, what happened. So. Yeah, that's, that's one reason to do a few 700 podcasts and play those articles. Okay, so the next block was Lorwyn, the Lorwyn block. So Lorwyn, Morningtide, Shadowmore, Eventide. Um, so, let, uh, so let's talk about that. So you led, what set did you lead? I led Lorwyn, and it has a very dear place in my heart. I, I really have a lot of affection for it. Uh, we worked so much on it, and the thing that we uh, cared about the most were just having all the tribes have a very strong mechanical identity and having them feel a certain way and play a certain way, and that when you played uh, Giants or Treefolk or Kithkin or Merfolk, you would really feel like you were doing that. Um, and also to sort of uh, fix some of the problems that Onslaught Block had had as the tribal focus block in the path that had been popular but had some... Uh, problems in it, like it had uh, Sparksmith as a common that said uh, 1R11 Goblin, cat deal X damage to target creature, and X damage to you, where X is the number of goblins you control. And so if you play 2 and 2 Sparksmith, your opponent's like, okay, here we go. I'll play some kind of 2-2 two, two more for 3. And you're like, well, play a second goblin on turn 3, tap Sparksmith, deal 2 to your creature, 2 to me, and for the rest of the game, you have this like common that taps to kill your opponent's creatures, uh, and the game was just just just, just over at that point. And um, Onslaught Block Constructed had, like, a ton of very powerful rats, like Slice and Dice and Chroma's Vengeance, and that made the sort of Tribal Matters theme kind of problematic because it's not fun to play a bunch of clerics on the board and then a million powerful rats destroy them all the time. And so the tribe that sort of, like, uh, was able to overcome that were the goblins because they were hasty and could get through all the rats and everything else, and that sacrifice specs get around the rats, but uh, the other tribes all kind of got crushed by that. Yeah, the other big thing... Oh, sorry, go ahead. 
no, no, you, please. Well, the, the other big thing I know that uh, I was a big proponent of was getting them out of one color. Like, one of the problems in Onslaught is if you want to play goblins, they were red. That's what they were. Yeah. And it made less diversity of deck building because your only choice was red, so you just play the best red cards. Right. Uh, and so all of the tribes were at least two colors, I believe, in Lorwyn. A few of them are yes, more than two. Right. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, Lorwyn was also the very first set to introduce Planeswalkers. And uh, that was a very hard project, and a lot of things could have gone wrong. And it kind of blows my mind that the fundamental Planeswalker structure, we basically got it in Lorwyn the first time out. I mean, the first time we published it, not the first time we iterated on it internally. And it has held since then where they have loyalty, they often three abilities, they often have an ultimate, they often have a plus ability and a sort of moderate minus ability. I know we've done some uh, variations on it since then, but uh, fundamentally that structure was good. And of the original five, Garrick, Liliana, Johnny, Chandra, Jace, all those first five got into constructed. They were all like good and limited. Um, and none of them were like overpowered or insane. And so like we really uh, delivered on a very hard ask by make the planeswalkers good first time out. Yeah, I've I've talked with Aaron about that too, that like it's kind of mind blowing how correct we were. <laughs> like yeah, it's mind blowing how correct we were. Like yeah. they're all kind of like printable now. Like they're all pretty close. Yeah, no, it was, it was, we, I mean, we did spend a bunch of time, as this, people who know the history, we originally, uh, Future Side was originally going to do them, and then we didn't think we had them right, so we spent more time, and then we, Laura, when we, th we thought we had it, obviously we did, but, um, okay, so, uh, did you work on anything else in that block? Um, I, let's see, I was a co-designer and developer on Shadow Moor, um, mm -hmm. I I remember that one of the, one of the issues with Lauren also is that um, it was trying to deliver on a cutesy fairy tale world that would set up the horror of the world turning evil and Shadowmoor happened right. Lauren is uh, uh, bubbling brooks, beautiful meadows, pretty happy campers. The, the, the terrors that's uh, names like pie in the face that were just like that's <laughs> as close you get to violence is like a pie in the face and. Uh, it was overly cutesy in order to have a horrific reveal when Shadowmoor flipped the world on its head, some sort of eclipse happens, all the good creatures turn evil, all the uh, pleasant things become sinister, and now the world's like nice and creepy. And so much like many horror movies that start with an idyllic uh, start in order to sort of deliver a uh, terrifying reveal, that was what it was going for on the creative side. But the problem is that in a movie, the, the horrifying reveal happened 20 minutes in, and in Lorwyn's case, you had to wait six months to get the reveal of Shadowmoor. And that was too long. It was too cutesy and too pacifistic to be what magic was for three months or six months. And so uh, that creative was a little bit problematic. It was nice that like Shadowmoor could finally like uh, deliver the, the, the ghastly horror. But I thought that um, at, in terms of delivering a cool storybook world, that the uh, Throne of Eldraine did a better job at like delivering Storbrook tropes and also got to do actual human Grimm's fairy tale Storbrook tropes, whereas Lauren had no humans and you can't do human fairy tales like go to lots of no humans. Okay, so on Shadowmoor, so uh, Shadowmoor played around with hybrid. Do you, do you have much, any stories of messing with hybrid? Um, I thought it was fun that it enabled uh, monocolor decks in some ways. You could sort of say, I've got all these... Uh, RG, RG, like, like, gruel, 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 hypermanic cards, and some Rakdos, 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 hypermanic cards. I can play them both in mono red, uh, or I can play them in their own respective color pairs. Um, I thought that, 
Uh, Chroma is a good example of something that was not well liked when it was presented because the flavor was nothing. And having it uh, come back as devotion in um, Theros was a lot more popular because the flavor delivered why both the mana symbols and the card were helping you. Like um, the notion of why it would help you to have a bunch of cards in the board that have red green hybrid costs mm-hmm. in their uh, upper right corner of the card, like why would that help you? The Chroma answer was, I don't know, because the wizard did it. And uh, in Theros, the idea that Thassa is pleased that she has many worshipers that love uh, blue, and the more blue mana symbols they have in their corner, the more devoted they are to blue. Obviously, they don't want to come to the battlefield. They don't have double blue around, so they must love blue. And so she'll be really impressed when uh, you have a bunch of, you know, Lord of Atlantis or equivalent double blue cards around. That really uh, delivered the flavor much better, and so the mechanic that was basically shunned in Eventide became popular in Theros. So there's another reason, by the way. I mean, you're correct. I think the flavor was a big thing. The other problem is Chromo, Chroma didn't have a consistent place it looked. Like, this Chroma card cared about pips in the graveyard. This cared about pips on the on board. Like, so there wasn't a consistent devotion said, hey, I'm just caring about this one thing, and it allowed you to make a deck about it because all the cards cared about the same thing. And that... So anyway, there's a mechanical, I think, mistake made with Chroma as well as the the flavor, I agree, was kind of unfocused as well. So, um, But anyway, it's a, good, it's a great example of how we try something and it didn't work and we sort of said, okay, why didn't this work and figured out how to make it work. Um, you can't always do that, but uh, Chroma was a good example. Okay, so uh, next after Lorwyn and Shadowmoor was Shards of Alara. So what, yeah, what's your memory of Shards of Alara? Yeah, I was the, the lead final designer, lead final developer of Charles Alara, and it, uh, so now it's at the dear to my heart, it um, sort of took the guild uh, structure from Ravnica and it sent it to three colors. And one thing that I sort of tried to uh, get Brady on board with from a creative standpoint was um, that with three colors, we have an opportunity to not say that uh, each three color shard is defined by the three colors that it is, but it could be defined by the two colors that it isn't. And so if Bant is the white, blue, green uh, triad, then what would it mean to have a world where there was no chaos and there was no death? And so in Bant's case, what that led to was uh, they don't fight to kill each other. They fight for honor and in tournaments and to have these sort of like honorable duels. And so that ended up feeding into Exalted that uh, Tinsman uh, sort of pitched and his sort of mini team delivered in that you're each going to have a tournament or duel. That means you each pick your best fighter, line it behind him, cheer him on, and then send him out to the battlefield to he'll joust the other guy. It's not going to be a, a sort of raucous melee of a bunch of guys hacking each other with axes. It's going to be two noble warriors with a bunch of sigils on them, and they're going to fight each other. And so that's a cool example of like how to uh, do some creative and have the creative eventually affect the, um, the world building. Okay, so question for you. Uh, were you on any of the mini teams? Uh... I'm trying to remember. It has been many years. Well, I'll say this. I, I know the three mini teams I was on. I don't think you and I are on the same mini team. So yeah. I ran Esper. I was on Naya. I was on Band. It's possible that I was like a big customer for the mini teams. And so I was not on them so that I could like critique their work more aggressively. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, that might have been true. Okay. Um, I do remember that the black, red, green triad, a.k.a. Jund, um, came back and wanted to do prey or devour i guess it's called and i and some other developers said no 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 it's not going to work well to have a bunch of uh cards in the same shard uh 
that all want to sacrifice a bunch of creatures. Like devour, devour something like it says something like devour two. When this comes into play, when this creature comes into play, you may sacrifice any number of creatures. For each creature you sacrifice this way, put two plus one, plus one counters on the creature you just cast, right? So you're going to play a dragon that's going to eat a bunch of its other little goblin uh, tokens, and he's going to become a huge dragon. And sometimes they also said, after you do all that sacrificing, uh, do damage equal this creature's power to to some target. And so they'll give you some further benefit for sacrificing guys, or some of them based on uh, the power that makes it worth a lot of sacrificing guys. And, but it, it was true then, and it's true now, that it's not good to like have your deck have 12 guys and then say sacrifice three creatures. You put this into play because where, where are all these creatures going to sacrifice? And we did do things in the shard to give you, uh, you know, make two goblin tokens and have some guys make sacrifices when they die and have you know, make a bunch of O ones you can sacrifice and, and ways to get them food to eat. And that was a big part of the sort of like food chain, uh, identity of Jund, but uh, we just knew that a million things like that wouldn't be good. And so we were trying to say, well, the keyword should be, death triggers and uh whenever a guy dies you get a benefit and that way it works in combat it works in the blood of your dudes it works when you sacrifice some things you can still have three or four big creatures that sacrifice a bunch of creatures that come into play and get benefits and they can trigger all the death triggers so that'll all work out um but uh bill rose and others were emphatic that it's just cooler to eat a bunch of goblins make a giant dragon than to like get little incy weensy triggers on uh guys dying and so we should headline uh, giant creature devours others to get big and uh, have the quiet part be a bunch of creatures that care about death triggers that support that, but they are not keyworded or ability worded. And I think that that was wise and that devour is a more splashy mechanic, even if it's not something that like spikes are big fans of. Yeah, so the the, t- the team I led, as I said, I was on three of the mini teams, was the Esper team. And so the big thing we did is just made all of our creatures artifact creatures. Right. Um, and colored artifacts also. Which yeah, colored artifacts. They were colored artifacts. Now, now a big thing of the game, right? It's become evergreen, whereas that was once a weird one-off set theme. Yeah, that, that, that was the first time we had done colored artifacts, I, I yeah. think. Um, Maybe Future Sight had one, I think, to sort of say. Oh, right, right. Future Sight had done the throw, throw forward for it. But right, right. In fact, the funny thing is the Future Sight card was meant to be a throw forward for New Phyrexia, not for here. But uh, we needed it, so I put it, <laughs> I did it here. Um, right. I remember that was uh, when we first pitched that. It was just people thought it was it was fun but quirky, and uh, right. so. But it turns out to have a nice mechanical uh, play value to like have our dice along in some decks, and it makes it less likely broken, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is good to have um, you know witches called kind of stuff that is color identified. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm I'm not too far from my work. So let, let, the last thing I know you worked on was the Zendikar block. Worked on Zendikar. So it was like working on Zendikar. Yeah, I can remember, uh, I can remember Mark relentlessly pitching his vision for the set, uh, trying to get everyone on board, because he kept saying, uh, you know, it's all about lands, right? He wanted to land block for years. No one ever let him do it. Um, this is another example everyone else being a stick in the mud, or Mark passionately uh, pursues an excellent idea and triumphs. Uh, but one day he started saying Land of Palooza instead of saying Lands Matter, <laughs> and that made it, like, more exciting and silly somehow, and people got a little more interested. And then he started saying, uh, the sense about maps, chaps, and traps. And uh, maps were a thing you must follow that eventually gets you to a treasure if you do it right. And eventually became the quest mechanic in Zendikar. Those enchantments that are, you know, search for such and such, put a bunch of counters on them. And then once you get some counters, because the actions you took, it it explodes and does something awesome, right? Like it says it says something like whenever you uh, attack the creature, put a quest token on this quest. And when you get seven quest tokens on it, it, it flips into something awesome, explodes into something awesome. So those are the maps. And then the chaps were the allies. We're just sort of a 
modified sliver mechanic of a bunch of dudes in five colors that work together to make awesome collective effects. And then the traps were uh, things like mind break trap that say when your opponent does the wrong thing, you can play this for reduced cost and, and suddenly screw them. And so all those things did uh, did go the distance and in, in modified form did make it into the set. So match traps and traps became reality as well as land of Palooza. Well, what happened was once we, we started with lands and then we added the adventure world. And so it was all the land mechanics plus the adventure world mechanics. Right. So yeah, the the map shafts and traps were the adventure world part. <laughs> and like honestly, it, like if you'd said like um, quests, allies, and traps, I think it would have like gotten less traction. But like literally <laughs> making these rhyme, got in people's head, made it fun, made it silly, and it's like uh, Mark's communication background strikes again, and that you found a way to sort of pitch the idea to uh, make it make it more catchy, and, and that did pay off. Yeah, one of the things I don't think people realize is how much of the the internal selling is important. There's a lot of a lot, pitching. A, a lot of the job is a designer. And as a video yeah. designer, too, that's a lot of the job is like convincing other people that this will work. Um, okay, so we're I'm not too far from uh, from work. So any final memories of working on Magic? Any last thoughts? It, it was a dream come true. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a... There's a board game Dragon Magazine called uh, File for Team. It's all about... Um, making board games and the joke of the game was that as you try to push these board games through the different departments like uh you know concept and design and art direction and editing there's a million chances that the the, the games will get diverted to file 13 which is the garbage and so your games will get canceled all the time and like hardly anything ever comes out and that that's that's the joke of file 13 and that game has a uh, a stage of the game's evolution called playtesting and it says something like uh Playtesters are paid, but getting the name in the back of the credits. But you can't eat the back of the credits, and so they usually end up starving to death in a cardboard box. <laughs> and that had stuck in my head as like, if you work on games, you will starve to death in a cardboard box. <laughs> and I was sure that you could not like, uh, you know, feed yourself, or definitely not uh, feed a family or send your kids to college if you work on games. And so when I went out to Wizards at first, I thought, oh, this this can't be a career, but it'll be like a fun sort of like after grad school uh, job to take. And when I got there, I saw that, uh, you know. People had kids there. They were raising them. They like uh, were functioning adults in normal societies. So not a bunch of people in cardboard boxes. And this is like a thing that is plausible to sort of have a career in. And so uh, that helped me realize that I could do that too. And I eventually sort of like become a full time uh, game designer in tabletop and uh, video games. And so it was it was weird that it, it it had never crossed my mind to like pursue game design a career until the whole Garford thing came up. And so. It's wild how many um, coincidences there are in life, how many opportunities there are. Like uh, you know, all the all the all the all the privileges and luck I've had is uh, just just astounding. But I'm very grateful I got to spend some time there. So anyway, anyway five years there. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, like I said, I one of the fun things of doing these interviews is uh, getting to talk with people that I worked with for a long time that I, I don't get to work with currently. So right. Um, so I miss you, Devin. It was. It was. It's. Uh, was I, I do. Uh, it was. I, I did enjoy working with you. Yeah, it was fun. Good times. We did make a lot of good sets. Okay, so uh, I apparently I'm at my desk. So uh, we all know what that means. It means it's the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking about magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So Devin, I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And everyone, I will see you next time. Bye-bye.